downy thought that a woman would steal your love when your love was really all you had was not much of a woman. He therefore decided to kill her. He would bury her in the deep corner formed where the house and the barn came together at an extreme angle. He would bury her where his wife kept her garden, the garden she loved more than she loved him. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Secret Window. You read it? I did. I imagine it rang a bell, didn't it? Oh, it certainly did. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Never heard of you, pal. Never heard of your story. Hosted by Arnie. So you got yourself a member of the Crazy Folks tribe. Stuart. Gee, I miss your constructive criticism. I really do. And Jacob. Well, he's a weird one. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Turn around. Turn the car around and get the hell out of here. Right now. Listener discretion is advised. What you don't understand is if we do start the fight, it's not going to end until one or the other of us is dead. Today we're discussing Secret Window, starring Johnny Depp, John Turturro, Maria Bello, Timothy Hutton, Charles S. Dutton, directed by David Kep. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful podcast anymore. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who can't stand rubberneckers, Jacob. Boy, then you're not built for the Stephen King series, because a lot of car accidents that we've been watching. Oh boy, did I know this was a Stephen King property when Johnny Depp, of all people, just starts ranting about rubberneckers? I, I Only King would do that, right? Yeah, but you blame King, Jacob, but rubberneckers isn't from the King pros. It felt so out of place coming out of Johnny Depp's mouth. I'm like, this must be from the book. No, this is from David Kep. I mean, writer of The Lost World, Jurassic Park 2, and... And the first. I mean, be kind. <laughs> and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Okay, you're being mean. <laughs> yeah, I noticed I had seen a lot of movies he had written or had some hand in writing. A lot of the times there's secret writers and 18 different writers. Yeah, he's a script doctor that's worked on everything. I mean, the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, the first Mission Impossible. Like, if they're doing a big budget movie, you would give it to him and maybe he'll get credit or maybe he won't. But every now and then he does something smaller and he directs it. He has these more personal projects like Trigger Effect, if you remember that. It was sort of Jurassic Park without the dinosaurs. The power goes off and people go crazy in the streets. Yeah, it was okay. I remember it not being as good as I wanted. I watched it because it had Kyle MacLachlan in it and he didn't do a whole lot of movie starring roles at that time. So it was fine. Yeah, they're always okay. Stir of echoes. It's like, it's fine. Uh, I, apparently, that's the review of the new Blumhouse movie you can buy for $20 right now that has Kevin Bacon in it. You should have left. I should have waited. That's what most people are saying about it. Don't VOD it. Wait for it to hit Netflix. Yeah, I think so. Like, he makes these small little thrillers that have maybe some Hitchcock aspirations. And so the question in approaching this is, which David Kep are we getting? Johnny Depp would seem like a small, quirky actor, except he's coming off of Pirates of the Caribbean, his biggest hit of all time. But this was made before that. They moved up its release and demanded Kep turn in a PG-13 edit 
because they wanted to get the Johnny Depp fangirl teenage crowd in here. And Kep, this wasn't really a personal project. He was working with Sony on a number of different projects. This story I came across to him, and he's like, yeah, this is something I could work with. And he worked with King a bit, but King was pretty hands-off. He said, go do whatever you want. The last third of this movie, and maybe the last quarter, differs greatly from the King original story. And the first three quarters, a lot the same, some down to the same dialogue. But I read this short story when it first came out, and I saw this movie when it first came out. I was in theaters in 2004 watching Secret Window. I read the novella because, you know, that's what I'm trying to do, keeping up. I have no nostalgia for it. Totally unimpressive. Like, why would anyone ever want to adapt this? The twist is spottable almost instantaneously. King actually didn't charge anything for the rights to this. No money. That might be part of the reason why you make this film. He did a trade instead of a sale. What did he get in return? Kingdom Hospital. Oh, okay. He had seen Kingdom, that Lars von Trier TV show, and wanted to bring it to the States. And so he gave up Secret Window for free so he could pursue that passion project that didn't really make it. I mean, it made it onto the air. It didn't get renewed. Yeah, I mean, can we just say, didn't we review this? Again, in this period of corona, time has no meaning. So either a few weeks or a few months (laughs) ago, but we did the dark half already. We already did this. And King actually apologized in some ways in a prologue going, you know, I wrote the dark half. I realized that this is basically the same thing, but I had this thought I just couldn't get out of my mind of what if I did the dark half differently and instead of, The two halves from one person going separate. The two were in one person. But he promised he has now gotten that trope out of his system. He was no longer going to be doing Misery, Dark Half, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Yeah, it's one of the four stories in Four Past Midnight. And yeah, you just it's fairly short, so it it goes by quick. But again, I can't imagine Hollywood seizing on it. I can imagine someone reading Langoliers and going, there's a cool idea here. There's a movie we should make. This one, just, uh, again, I can't imagine that anyone thought that this had to be brought to the big screen, no less. Like, this feels very much like a small TV episode, a simple twist. And instead, we're going to get a Johnny Depp blockbuster. Did okay, as I could tell. It pretty much made his money back anyway. Yeah, globally, it did pretty well. It's kind of a break-even movie. It didn't set the world on fire. I don't think all the Pirates of the Caribbean fangirls raced to theaters. I remember seeing this pretty early in its run because I had seen Pirates. I liked Johnny Depp in it, but I liked Depp long before that. I mean, I didn't see everything he did, but... Movies like Nick of Time that I probably wouldn't have seen, I would see because he was in it. So the fact that he was doing this, and it was Stephen King, and it was March, there wasn't a whole lot of competition for movies. Yeah, we were there and saw it, and I remembered liking it coming back to it. I didn't dread it at all. I liked the short story, too. I do think that the twist is a little obvious, and I think it's too long. I mean, I guess I could say that about most King things. This should be, like, the length of one of the shorter Skeleton Crew stories. It shouldn't be a novella the way he made it. But I liked it well enough. I was looking forward to revisiting this movie. I haven't seen it since theaters. 
Yeah, this is the first time that I watched it. I never rented it, never saw it. King was kind of invisible by this point. A lot of what he was doing, you know, Dead Zone was on the USA Network. I didn't see that. Green Mile had come out and people loved it, but I didn't see it. This was around the time that he had had the hit and run. You know, like I think he was having, in a strange way, coming back from that near-death experience, I think gave him a, a new visibility and people just wanted to adapt his projects. And he was having a second or third renaissance, but I wasn't watching any of them. Yeah, I hadn't seen this one before either, but when I was looking into it, what am I getting into here after Langoliers? I'm like, oh, Johnny Depp, like that, that brings maybe some credibility. At least to me, I'm like, a Stephen King movie with like a major movie star. It can't be that bad. I I didn't go see it at the time in theaters because of Pirates. I was, you know, I wasn't a huge Johnny Depp fan, but going into this, at least that gave me a shimmer of hope. This is going to be something credible because of him. Plus John Turturro. Well, look, I love John Turturro, but I don't think he always brings that credibility. All right, yes, he was in the Transformers films, and I forget that. When I see him, I think of (laughs) Coen Brothers. Yeah, I agree that these are actors that always do something interesting. They're in a lot of bad films, but they're always doing something interesting in them. That can be the delight of a a Johnny Depp performance, is that he's just going to do the unexpected. And so, if I thought the story was predictable, maybe he can find something unpredictable about it. I do wonder how much directing Kep did, because... He did say Johnny Depp was somewhat uncontrollable. Did Depp get to pick all his hats? Depp was very big on the hat, but there was supposed to only be one. It was actually a screw-up that there were two. But he was very big on his wardrobe and very big on quirks for his character. He wanted his character to have braces the whole movie. They compromised and he has braces at the end. But Kep was really happy with what Depp brought to the table. And when this is a one-man show, basically... This movie is pretty much Depp alone for a lot of the time. Whatever he can bring to make it interesting to him is probably also going to make it interesting to the viewer. Totoro, on the other hand, only did this because his son liked Stephen King. (laughs) Sure. Well, let's find out about it. Arnie, give him the plot and we'll walk through that secret window. Johnny Depp plays Morton Rainey an author living in his northern New York cabin because he's separated from his adulterous wife Amy, played by Maria Bello. Mort isn't having a great time. Depressed about his separation, he spends most of his time sleeping, unable to write due to writer's block. Things get more exciting when a threatening southern man, John Shooter, played by John Turturro, shows up on Mort's doorstep, claiming Mort's short story, Secret Window, was stolen from Shooter's original work, Sewing Season. He's insistent that Mort give him credit and restore Shooter's original ending, where the protagonist murders his wife. Mort knows he wrote it, and the story was first published two years before Shooter claims to have written the story. Shooter is unconvinced and gives Mort three days to produce the magazine that published Secret Window, and Shooter kills Mort's dog. When the local police don't take him seriously, Mort hires a PI, Ken Karsh, played by Charles S. Dutton, to get rid of Shooter. But Ken disappears and Shooter becomes more violent. When Amy calls and tells Mort their house was burned down, Mort suspects Shooter is the arsonist. And Shooter has killed Ken and says the evidence will incriminate Mort, so Mort has to dispose of the body. Then Mort has a breakthrough, or a breakdown. He realizes there is no John Shooter. Mort is suffering from multiple personality disorder, and the John Shooter personality killed Ken and a townie. Shooter's ultimate goal is to kill Mort's cheating wife. When Amy comes to the cabin, Mort, with Shooter's persona, attacks her. When her boyfriend Ted shows up, played by Timothy Hutton, Mort beheads him with a shovel, then beheads Amy too. 
We jump six months later and Mort is happy. He's writing again, but everyone in town thinks he murdered his wife. But there's no proof, so Mort stays a free man, continuing to write his books as credits roll. Oh man, you left out the best secret about that ending. The corn? Yeah. We'll get there. Yes. Let's start with the title. It's a strange title. I feel like maybe one of the interpretations you could have comes from the first shot. It is the character Mort or Johnny Depp looking through his windshield at us. It's almost as if the secret window is the fourth wall and that we're being invited to come into this story about marital duplicity. But why is it called secret window? That window in his study doesn't really factor much into the plot did really baffle me like we'll find out that his wife moved a chest and there was a window behind it and she plans on making a garden that you could see through the window that feels like a very weird secret window to build a story around yeah and it's similar in the short story it doesn't feel like it's a huge part the key being that the garden is outside the window and his wife loved the garden more than she loved him i feel like we never even saw the wife's garden Yeah, did he shoot her from the window? I mean, if he was a sniper or something, I would understand the importance of that window strategically being over her garden, but... I think it's also a secret window into the mind of Mort. Yeah, into his mind, get it? It's a metaphor. I listened to some of the material on the disc, and there was a lot of psychobabble and Faulkner quotes, and people tried to make it seem like it meant something, but I don't believe the movie tries very hard to explain it. We'll see in an early shot, they play with mirrors in that duality, souls, whatever. It's not a great title. I'm going to say this. The movie does more with the title than King's book. I'll get to it at the end, but here... At least it makes literal sense because at the end of the film, Mort has his secret that he murdered his wife and her lover, and he can look out his secret window to see his garden where he buried them. So here it makes a lot more sense than it ever does in the book. Yeah, you couldn't call it The Secret Garden because that is a very famous children's story that has (laughs) multiple movies to it. Yes, that's why they shortened it to just Secret Window. Could you imagine bringing the kiddies thinking you're seeing a secret garden? Kids, it's a sequel to Secret Garden. Secret Window, Secret Garden. It's going to be fun. You're going to eat some corn in it. It's festive. I do think that this could be considered a Children of the Corn movie. Oh, I'm holding my tongue. We're teasing too much at the end. I know. It's At least get to that hat. But let's get through this prologue because it's actually kind of ingeniously staged. We have, like I said, this man in his car, the windshield wipers are going. He's having an internal dialogue, arguing about whether he should stay or go. And they do some trickery in which it looks like, just out of nowhere, suddenly a motel is behind him. And he's storming in on his wife, cheating on him. Yeah, he drives backwards to it. (laughs) Like, he decided to leave, and then goes in reverse for a very long time. Steals a key because the guy's not at the desk. That's convenient. Also because it was when you needed a key for a hotel room. None of those cards to just slide through. Well, this looked like a no-tell motel. Those still have keys, as I understand. Mm, no, a lot of those have even upgraded. Believe me, this movie <laughs> is way retro. People need three days to get a copy of a magazine. <laughs> and listen yeah. to CDs. Yes. This is 2004, if you say so. <laughs> I do like that we don't hear what he says to his wife. Kep said on the commentary, and I agree with him, how many times have we seen that scene and heard every word he could possibly say? It's a little bit nicer that we just project what we think is going on, but Mort is pissed, as he's right to be. 
And it's also telling that he wants to put that into a story when we get to the next scene, he's trying to dramatize that very moment, and even he doesn't know what he says. Like, he's blocked creatively because he's stuck in that moment. And we still get more Johnny Depp monologuing here. Does that work for you, the voiceover? I mean, we've had this conversation so many times about how voiceover can be a crutch, and we're doing pretty soon Castaway. It feels like we're doing two movies that are very similar, single-person shows, and they didn't need Tom Hanks to do a voiceover. Here, we get Johnny Depp talking almost nonstop throughout the film. I kind of like it. I mean, I think he talks a little bit too much, but I do like, especially later as the secret is revealed, you'll hear him saying things. And I remember watching this and I'm like, well, that seems out of character unless this other type of thing is going on that I think is happening. And yeah, that plays out that way. But I do like that they play with the voiceover is you'll hear things come out one way and then they'll be repeated and it'll be a different way. That's not so threatening. So there's some creativity there. Again, they could have cut a lot of it. Yeah, and jumping to the end, knowing that he's having an internal dialogue with other personalities, I think you need to set that up as normal in the beginning. Creative people, when they're working on their creative projects, tend to talk to themselves. So at the beginning, it just feels like, yeah, a man that's kind of gone stir-crazy, trying to work out his writer's block, trying to get over the anger he has about a wife that betrayed him with the dark half. It's Was it intentional that they cast Timothy Hutton, star of the dark half, as the man that she preferred? I'm shocked as hell, but Kep hired him because he thought that Timothy Hutton is the perennial nice guy. Wow. And it would be hard to hate such a nice guy. And I'm like, I primarily know this guy from the dark half. So did he see the dark half? <laughs> yeah, is, ask anyone that worked on that set. Yeah, no, nobody was seeing kind things. He was all dark half and no sweet half. But okay, so we're supposed to think that he is a nice guy. That was Kep's intention was the fact that we couldn't hate this guy for cheating with Amy because of his what he brings to the screen as a likable personality. That's what Kep said. Me, I hate this guy. Yeah, I never see a likable personality. Later on, he's like, we need to go have a talk. It just didn't even feel natural to me. That Yeah, there's nothing I buy with Tim Hutton. No, he's kind of a tool the whole time, and I never got any sense that we were to think otherwise. But casting Timothy Hutton, to me, meant like they were drawing arrows straight back to the storyline of the dark half. And why do that? I guess it. this is sort of a parallel story, as Arnie mentioned. Even King thought so as he created it. Yeah, if this was clever casting on Cap's part, and as you said, Stuart, he works on so many movies, this could be an in-joke to him, but he never revealed it, maybe because he didn't even want Hutton to know that it was a joke on him. Right. Just referencing. I don't, you know, it's not a joke, ha ha ha, hysterical, but again, riffing and referencing on King that's come before, and King that I don't feel like mass audiences saw much of, you know, like a lot of people are going to miss it because a lot of people did not see that Romero film. Although we do get some very dramatic, I mean, this movie's very expensive, and I think the reason is they have all of these computer-assisted shots. Like, we have this very call-attention-to-itself camera movement where it goes all the way across a lake, through that window, we're told, is the secret window, and into a mirror, which may be the the secret window. I do feel like they're really, camera-wise, they're really trying to say that this is more than a TV movie. This is not the dark half. We're in a perspective that keeps you on your toes, maybe. Maybe you might be weirded out with the way that we're actually watching Depp in reflection as he's answering the door. And maybe that's the 
thematically important that he's on the flip side of the mirror. Yeah, I'd say it is because it's when he breaks out of the mirror that he finally realizes what's really going on. Here, this is very strict, unreliable narrator perspective we have here. The story never goes away from Johnny Depp. We never know what anybody's doing unless Johnny Depp's character of Mort here is aware of it. So everything we see comes from his perspective and how he is viewing it, not how it is actually happening. But we jump six months later, as you said, Depp's trying to write, not really succeeding, talking to his old dog, and they bring Taturo in pretty quick. They jump right to the heart of it, as does the short story. It does not take long before you get the southern drawl, you stole my story. So John Totoro loves his son. That's what you're telling me. That's why he agreed. He, he wasn't sent by his agent to Children of the Corn audition. <laughs> this, is, this is not like confused. I thought I was auditioning for another movie and that's why I wore this hat. Because <laughs> he's all wrong here. Like he's 10 times kind of wrong in this part. Yeah, he says he's from Mississippi. I feel like he's from, you know, I don't know, wherever the Amish are from in Pennsylvania. That's the vibe I get from him. You want a hayseed that's imposing. I'm trying to think of like Billy Bob Thornton and Sling Blade, Michael Shannon and just about any movie, maybe Matthew McConaughey, but like him as the threat. Oh boy, you're already in troubled waters. I'm kind of into a conceit of this plot that a guy shows up saying, hey, you stole my story. But then I start asking a lot of questions where I quickly come to figure out this movie's secret because there's, I feel like Sherlock Holmes, there are no other logical answers to the problem this movie will give us about this short story that this dude wrote that supposedly Mort stole, except he changed the ending and this guy has hunted him down after, I don't know, how many years? Seven. He says he got, wrote it in 97, yeah. So he's hunted him down. It's weird when I start trying to figure out the details and, and its secret quickly unraveled for me. Yeah, when I saw this in theaters, I didn't remember the short story. Remember, this collection came out in the very early 90s, so it had been over a decade since I'd read the short story. Remembered nothing about it going in. But by the second meeting, I'm convinced that these two are the same person. And again, this was kind of a in vogue trope around that time. I always pull out the film Identity as an example. No, it's, I mean, it was played to death. I would actually use the expression. I, I felt like Fight Club kicked it off. It's like, here's the good movie that started the trend, and then here's all the bad examples that came afterwards. It was the turn of the millennium, and it was just in vogue. I mean, I could literally name 20 oh, movies. Yeah. It yeah. was, people love to end their thrillers in a surprise. I, I mean, Charlie Kaufman made fun of it in adaptation. It was so popular. Yes, it was the convention, and this movie's coming real late to it. 2004, that's a year after Identity, and Identity was the punchline. <laughs> yeah, and so I think I was just prone to look for this kind of a twist at this point, because so many films had done it, and I don't think it ruins the movie to know it. I will say it's ironic, Artie. Both of us were fooled by Timothy Hutton in the dark half when they threw some makeup on him. Here, it's two different actors. I'm like, oh, no, it's the same guy. Like, no no question. But to hear what you're saying, Arnie, you don't feel like it changes your enjoyment of the movie to know it right away. No, I ended up watching this movie three times for this review, once with commentary, twice straight. And I remembered the secret the first time. And the second time, I remembered everything, and I think I enjoyed it more the second time, watching it as a complete character study of a man going through a breakdown. It's feeling like What About Bob? Oh, don't, don't, that that makes What About Bob seem bad. Between, like, Depp's humor and quirks 
to that hat, there is no way to take this premise as anything terrifying or thrilling or mysterious. It is a comedy about an annoying stalker. So I'm the only one who likes Turturro in this and thinks that, yes, his performance is over the top. Yes, his southern drawl is a little bit on the side of funny. But for what he's doing, and especially later on when he slams Johnny Depp into a tree, he works for me as this flip side doppelganger of Depp. Look, I enjoy Totoro showing up. I think I was with you until that, but like, yeah, I'm enjoying this crazy performance he's doing, not because I'm brought into the movie because of it. It's just kind of a wacky Totoro performance that's fun to watch, but no, it does not get me more involved with it. Horrible miscasting is what I'd call it. It's, yeah, if you want him to be a heavy, someone that's breaking arms and bruising and scary, terrible, terrible casting. I agree he doesn't have the level of menace that I would like. I would really like to think there's somebody there who could really kick Mort's ass. And in fact, I didn't look up their heights, but to me, John Saturo has always been a tall person, and Johnny Depp is standing almost as tall. I don't know if they put him on an apple box or not. I usually don't think of Johnny Depp as six foot something. They don't resemble each other. I mean, you want them to feel like halves of a whole. And I feel like McConaughey could have done that. Hell, you could have gotten Skeet Ulrich, you know, which was his doppelganger from that time. Well, actually, I don't think Skeet was working in 2004, but you know what I mean. You could have gotten someone that physically looked like him more, but that would just give away the big twist right off the bat. They gave it away, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think that career-wise Totoro and Depp run in the same circles? Like, they're both quirky actors who do respectable indie stuff and shit commercial stuff? Yes, they both are that. But I don't believe they work as getting the same roles, playing the same parts. Yeah, I, I don't see them as equals. Totoro's a character actor. Depp has major blockbusters behind him. He, he's seen as a major actor. What did he have before Pirates as a major blockbuster? Edward Scissorhands. Like, he's someone I've known for a long time. Let me just put it this way. Johnny Depp is cast as a heartthrob. Johnny Depp gets the girl, and John Turturro never gets the girl. Uh, you got a point there. But anyway, this is what they've chosen to go with, and it's funny. I mean, like, it's quirky. Again, it feels like the strangest Children of the Corn movie yet. But I'm like, where could this possibly go? Yeah, again, I'm into the conceit of the plot. Like, okay, there's a short story. I'm trying to understand why John Shooter is so upset about this new ending. I guess because it doesn't end in death. That's what he wants is a more violent ending. I do think it's a real mistake of this movie not to walk us through what those stories were about. We have early scenes where Mort is going to go grab his published story out of a hardback compendium and go line by line at this dirty manuscript and we know from his reactions that, oh, they must be very similar. But wouldn't you like to naturally know what happens in it other than, I mean, we can at least infer it's about a man that kills his wife and buries her in a garden. But shouldn't we see that more? Yeah, I wish I knew instead of having to guess the whole time that that was the ending. What is different about these endings that Shooter doesn't like? I don't really know for most of the film. Like, you got to give me something. We talked about the dark half. There's way too much time, I think, spent on that one. Like, with this whole plot of him being framed for writing under a pseudonym. But here, I feel like, give us a little bit more exposition. Like, it just gets to Shooter so quickly. And it's like, well, what is the problem with this story that he doesn't like? I feel like this story is going to be some key into understanding the subtext, the themes of this film, but I never get that story. I always thought that the story was the movie we're watching pretty much. I understand what you're saying to a degree, but the character in the story, and I freeze-framed on this, 
In Depp's version, he's called Tommy Haverlock. And in Totoro's version, he's Todd Downey. But this, whoever the hard-boiled narrator is of the story in question, is he in Mississippi? I mean, does this in any way feel like it's about Southern rural life? That would be helpful to know if, like, you stole the story because it so much resembles where I came from. No, I think the reason people might think he stole this story is because he mentions that it's unlike anything he's ever written. He doesn't write this kind of horror-ish, thrilling type of story. I'm guessing he's a pretty boring writer. Well, and it's also brought up time and time and time and time again that he did this once before, that he did plagiarize someone's story and had to pay him off, and no, he's never done done it again like they keep cracking that whip over and over that he is a plagiarist no that wasn't a plagiarist that was some fan that wouldn't leave him alone i thought that's what they were telling me it's hard to say at times i thought it was a stalker and other times they they're like you did this before you didn't do it again did you so i thought they were talking about plagiarism is it even about plagiarism in the original king novella it definitely is You find out at the end that this guy went to college with somebody who wrote a good story, then got shipped off to Nam and died, and the author just sent it to a publishing house with his name on it, and that was his beginning of his fame. And he is eaten up by that guilt of the undeserved attention another man's story gave him, and that led him to this psychological break. Here, I don't think we're meant to conclude that this is in any way about plagiarism. He's mad that his wife cheated on him, and there's a part of him, a character in his story, that's basically popped out of the story to say, go kill her. Except we don't know if it's a character from the story. That would have been cool to know. Like, Dark Half, they had eyeballs popping out of brains, and like, I kind of wish this movie was more like that. I could just go with this conceit. I've guessed your little secret movie, and so now I'm kind of bored that you're going to spend a lot of time just trying to play coy. Give me some creature feature stuff like that Dark Half film. If it wasn't for the fact that Charles Dutton actually hands Mort the magazine with the story in it, I would think that this story never existed. And what he has is an internal struggle between two parts of him that are in conflict as to how to end their story, be it you kill your wife or you don't kill your wife. I mean, but it's a story that was already written. That was confusing to me, too, why he wanted him to change a story that was already published, even though he's denying that it was published. Shooter's denying it was published because he says he has the original one. Like, It would be helpful to understand what Shooter represents. We will have one scene in which Mort is at a farm going through some kind of yard sale, puts on the hat, and Amy's standing there in a mirror, another secret window, and that is the only indication of him ever thinking about a rube from Mississippi. Why would this be the thing to come to him to tell him to kill his wife? Because it's a pun on the name. Like, it, it ends up just being about shoot her. We just want to do that. So we could see that written in the background one time. Red Rom! Red Rom! Yes. And so that's really cheap, right? Like, that is the kind of thing you could only make work in a half-hour Alfred Hitchcock presents, right? Like, that is not a movie. And that's how this movie does work for me, though, is like one of those late-night horror anthology tales. Except it's 90 minutes, and we got to talk about the middle of this movie. Yeah. (laughs) So, all right, we all guess it pretty early on, 
And maybe even he knows, you know, he's definitely spooked by the fact that there are eerie similarities. And try as he might, throw it away, his cleaning lady pulls it out, and he's reviewed it all, and he knows that there's something to this. And so he goes wandering out to this rendezvous at the lake, and that's where the deal is made. You have three days to produce the Ellery Queen magazine where it was published. Which, again, how does this work in 2004? Why not go to the library and get the microfiche? Why does it take three days? You could go to your local library, get on the computer. Yes, I was asking all these questions. This story is way out of date in 2004, saying it's going to take three days to get this proof. How far does Mort live from his old house, like where he has a copy? Because, yeah, three days seems like a long time. I think it's like Dark Half, where like he has a, a writing house... And then like a living house and in the divorce, she got the Riverdale property where he keeps all the manuscripts. Though they're not divorced yet, they're still separating. He won't sign the papers. Because again, the writer's block reflects his own block with the relationship. He can't start to write again until he deals with what he's doing with her. So why kill the dog? That just feels like a cheap thing. Like, we need a death, so let's just kill Chico. Especially when Shooter, because we're supposed to believe Shooter killed the dog. Shooter later, when he kills some other people, is going to be like, well, they were on to me. They were going to expose what was going on, so I had to get rid of them. That dog don't know shit. It's a dog. It wasn't her dog. I mean, she does mention it in passing, caring about it. But, like, there's nothing about their relationship where it felt like killing the dog would hurt her or... Or anything. I took it as Shooter threatening him, and it's still the two personalities at war. And so Shooter's doing it to hurt Mort. Yeah, again, he already agreed he would get it within three days. Why kill the dog? It just... Yeah. It's because we're in a horror movie, and boy, is this thing slowing down. Like, I'm just grateful for any blood. Even if it's a screwdriver to the head of a dog, I'm like, well, at least something is happening. Yeah, and I'm not going to blame Cap for this. It is straight out of the short story. Everything we're seeing, every act that has happened so far, the meeting down the way, the phone call from the wife with the bad feeling, the killing of the pet, everything here in this first act is identical to King's prose. But then we do start to veer off here. Yeah, but this is an adaptation. I haven't read it, but Stuart, you're saying it's pretty mediocre. Sounds like a lot of room for improvement. You don't get by because it's an adaptation to sell me a a bad story just because that part was in the book. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it is true to the book. It isn't like, because when Stuart says, is it just to get a kill in? It's not just to get a kill in. It's not like Kep was looking at this and like, we need to kill somebody because it's been too long of a horror movie without a death. Let me kill the dog. It played that way to me, again, not having read that, because, again, Shooter's going to explain why he kills other people later on, and this dog doesn't match that M.O. Yeah, the dog doesn't have a copy of the magazine. (laughs) The reason why the alternate half would be doing bad things is it wants to prevent Mort from knowing the truth about who originated the story and getting his hands on that original copy of the story. That would prove the publishing. Although he already has the hardback book, so again... He needs that publishing date, though. I guess they didn't say the original publishing date in the hardback of that story. Sure. Maybe I'm getting confused with the short story, but I believe there was something said about the copyright date in the front, but that's not enough for Shooter. And I don't think Shooter would take a web page either. I don't even know that Shooter would know what a web page is. (laughs) I have a real problem with Shooter. Shooter is making the accusation. The burden of proof is on him. He's got to prove that he wrote this before it was published in 95. Like, Shooter's got a bad sense of justice. 
Except that what he's carrying is the threat of bodily harm to Mort and to anyone Mort cares about. And so you're trying to appease him so he doesn't hurt anybody. Right. So, of course, he's going to seek out authorities and we meet the local sheriff who's no help at all, who doesn't even think killing a dog is a crime. Like, boy, I'd be mad. I'd be like, I'm voting you out. Like you, your badge is gone by the end of the night. If you're telling me someone can kill my dog and that's no problem. I almost thought the cop might be another personality the way he acts so stupid. (laughs) I did. Yes, I did wonder that. I mean, the fact that he doesn't take anything seriously and he keeps talking about cross-stitch, good for my arthritis. I'm like, is he real? He does not act like a real human being. Yeah, there's a lot of local color in this, and I feel like Depp thought it was really fun to do funny, like to bring the funny and bring the comedy here. But boy, you need a little bit of chills, right? There's not a whole lot of like belly laughs in The Shining. You want there is in the remake tension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I just feel like maybe they're not in the mood for doing what they signed on to do. And so, yeah, we just have a lot of extraneous, like, then he goes to New York and Charles Dutton and him are going to play this game about, like, I'm starting my clock and getting paid. No, I'm going to turn it off. Just a lot of comedy, just a lot of goofy repartee. You read the short story. It's not a scary short story. It's not a horror story, even hardly. Uh, it's a thriller. It's. Are you in suspense then? Because I'm not. What is it then? I guess that would be, beg the question what should you be going for? Lighthearted drama? That's what you categorize. Them. You like that it's not taking itself seriously. Because I feel like. I know that Depp worked with Roman Polanski, and that definitely is Roman Polanski's style. Like, The Tenet, I think, was referenced as a movie that they were thinking about in making this. That's a Roman Polanski psychological, I'll I'll use the word thriller, but with a lot of goofiness. Later on, when you have the multiple Johnny Depps talking, one of them is doing a Roman Polanski the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that was a thought in somebody's head, probably Depp, because again, they had done The Ninth Gate. I think that was the name of the movie. They had done a horror movie together not so long before. But this is not Polanski at the helm. That's all I can say. Like, I'm not really laughing and I'm wondering when we're going to get to something that means something. I feel like getting rock here, Charles S. Dutton, is escalating things a little bit. Because again, he's a big, burly guy. He looks like somebody who could take John Turturro down. Yeah, I mean, almost anybody could, but all right, yes. And they do some silliness where, again, it ends up being more comedy than scary, but he goes to the house and we think he's dead, but he just fell asleep at the wheel of his car. And I didn't think of that as comedy. I thought of that as kind of a false scare. Like, we were supposed to think that Shooter had done yet another murder, first the dog, now the private investigator, or lawyer. I mean, I've never seen a private investigator who... Bill's like a lawyer, but I thought we were supposed to think he's dead and then be able to breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, he's not dead. I didn't take that as a ha-ha moment. No, but the scene builds to Depp alone going up into his bathroom and killing a mirror. There's so much here in the middle of just kind of goofing around. And if there is supposed to be something that's terrifying, I mean, even killing a dog, that's like, that's usually something that makes you feel terrible. Like people hate to see animals killed on screen, but it wasn't played for scares. You know, the other thing about killing the dog that I was thinking about when I was watching this is murderers often start on animals, you know, especially serial killers and psychopaths. And the fact that Johnny Depp's character here, Mort, Shooter, whatever, is building up to murder, the fact that he practiced on a dog is perhaps going for a bit of realism. 
I mean, it explains why he's he's quick to bury the thing and, like, unconvincing in his sorrow of losing it. It's odd to the audience member that has not figured out uh, what the twist might be. They, it probably sticks with him that a man's dog can be murdered and by morning he's over it. Well, things do escalate because he was going to get his magazine from the house that Amy is getting in the divorce and it looks like Shooter burned down the house. This is where I knew it was Mort. It was the same person the whole time. Like, we'll see him outside the house, and there's, like, a party going on there, so we're supposed to assume he just drove away. But I'm like, this shooter, dude, unless they got, like, some crazy Matrix-style twist on this movie that is just going to blow my mind regarding why John Turturro is really going all out to hide that this story was published before he had written it. Like, it just seems crazy. You'd have to have an amazing answer to make make that a good film. But it's got to be the same person at this point. Like, this is where it left no doubt in my mind. And here's where I got a little... Like something, a little charge out of the movie, a little postmodern buzz, because, you know, going on right now during this recording, Johnny Depp is in court fighting with Amber Heard to have all of this. Now that we're introduced to Amy, this blonde woman who used to love him and now they have houses burning down and I get it's a little uncomfortable, right? Is there feces (laughs) in the bed? The dog was pretty old and blind. If so, I'd blame the dog. (laughs) But. I feel like we should be getting to know a lot more about the relationship. The flashbacks we get are few and far between, and I don't feel like I really got a sense about who they were as a couple. And I feel like that's what's really needed in the middle of this movie. In order to understand what he's going to do about his wife, I need to see what she meant to him. Yeah, I thought we were going to get that when they go to meet with the insurance you know, to, to sort out what the payment's going to be and itemize everything. Like, they play that out as, like, a big divorce, marriage-type drama thing, and I don't feel like I learned a whole lot about the relationship from it, though. It's, he's still upset. Okay. What I learned more about is about his relationship with Ted. It's bad, which you would think it would be. And just how antagonistic he's going to be. This is where they start to try and tease. I read hearing alternative theory as to, well, maybe it isn't Depp. Maybe it actually is this guy. He's got a southern accent when Hutton can manage it. He claims he's from Shooter's Bay, Tennessee. Shooter, so therefore, maybe John Turturro has been hired by the new guy that has Amy under his clutches. Yes. (laughs) It's pretty thin, but it does lead to one funny scene where he punches his own car window and breaks his hand. I never thought Mort would be that lithe. That was a funny scene that actually kind of worked for me, but the subplot doesn't work. The new guy, that's always like the most obvious culprit. It's the one that it can never be because, of course, the new guy is the threat. And again, that is a very elaborate plan if that's what it's going to be. Like, he found some Amish hitman to go threaten (laughs) a writer about a short story claiming he had already written it. Yeah, and and they're going to say, oh, no, John Turturro just got out of control. Like, Ted is behind all this, and and his hitman just got out of control and started burning everything down. It's a very bad cover story. Yeah, I mean, I never think it's true for a minute, even the first time I watch it, but I could see why Mort might believe it. Again, keep in mind, Mort doesn't realize it's all him. And so looking for what is really going on. I think Mort is coming up with this conspiracy theory to cover up his tracks. 
Yeah, he's not willing to face what uh, is being asked of him. And, you know, if, if you're paying attention to things going on in the background, there's also little games like he claims he's not smoking, but he has to sneak a cigarette when the housekeeper is around. And then when he goes into town and they offer him the Paul Malls, the brand that John Turturro is smoking, he's like, oh, why would you offer that? I don't smoke those. And just the expression on the guy behind the counter lets you know, oh, Depp has been in here and bought that brand. That's why he offered it. And that scene, by the way, was a lot longer. Kep kept saying in the commentary, yeah, it ended up being too funny. I needed to pull away from comedy. Too funny? They thought it was funny in the first place? Well, funny, quirky is the, how I take it. I mean, whether you're laughing or not. Okay, quirky. Yeah, I'm, I'm never laughing during this film. I mean, I, I think it has a sense of humor. And I think, again, Depp usually infuses, insists upon having this kind of unexpectedness, eccentricity to his characters. But whether you like it or not, is it jiving with the source material well, I guess it's keeping me interested. It makes me curious about Mort, even though I feel like the mystery itself is, again, running 45 minutes behind me at this point. Well, do you get a little more excited than when we actually have a body count? A townie saw what we're going to find out at the end is Depp talking to himself and the private eye and this townie both get murdered and Shooter says that it's going to be Mort who goes to jail over it because Mort actually murdered them. Yeah, his his screwdriver in Tom Greenleaf's head and his hatchet in the bodyguard's chest. And I, I do love like Shooter's like, you got to hide the evidence. They're going to find out and then you got to come meet me. And like to hide the evidence, he's going to push a car off into a quarry. Like, I feel like that's the first place I, I, I look we've seen the sheriff he's not doesn't seem very competent but like that'd be the first place you go and look when you find out there's people missing and there's car tracks he didn't cover up going off that cliff like very poor execution and covering his crimes up the movie fooled me because he gets his watch caught on the gear shift and he ends up getting himself free you know it's this moment of am i going to go over the cliff with the car he gets himself free but the watch stays in the truck well why have that watch stay in the truck if it's not going to be the evidence that gets him convicted yeah the sheriff knows something by the end of this but i kept waiting for that car to come up i thought they were going to find that because again that feels like the obvious thing to look for when people are missing yeah not only that but again let's just assume you haven't guessed the ending the fact that he's now helping the killer hide the bodies i mean this frame-up job is not so good that like you know if your fingerprints aren't on the screwdriver or like i mean you come clean about this he would be exonerated. I don't believe that you would be worried about going to jail for killing people that you didn't kill. So the fact that he's burying the body is almost like telling you, oh, he did this crime. Yeah, if you believe Shooter did this, that may be your screwdriver. Yes, maybe your fingerprints are on there because you're putting something together, but it's also going to have someone else's fingerprints on it. Like, that's going to be found. Like, look, get a good lawyer and just go to the cops and, and try to sort it out. I mean, I think anyone would know by this point, by this point, with the only other suspect being Timothy Hutton, who's just a bad one, and like every other character dead, except for the wife, it just feels like, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And then he starts hearing things, too. Like, this is the point where Depp is, like, going into town and hearing people say, you know, accusatory things when they said innocuous things. Like, he's doing some twitch with his mouth. He's starting to look crazy. He's playing it like, oh, I'm crazy with a capital C. 
Yeah, we see that when he goes into, and I'm glad they addressed this in the movie because he goes into a United States post office to go get the actual physical copy that got shipped to him. It took three days to get shipped to him by UPS. And I'm like, UPS doesn't deliver to P.O. boxes. It can't go into post office, but they do clear that up. Like th- this lady's doing him a favor by taking this UPS package. I was, I, I was very upset until that got addressed. They actually lately have got a partnership. I have UPS delivered to my P.O. box all the time these days. Yes, things have changed. I've worked for FedEx for a long time and no P.O. boxes. I can see that you're passionate about this issue. It wasn't mine, but I mean, again, it just feels like now that he's hearing things that aren't there and, you know, like this clerk is saying things and he's hearing, I saw what you did. It's almost over. We are nearing the climax. They're about to reveal it anyway, but there can't be anyone that's going to have their mouth open in shock that have their mind blown by the idea that, wow, Depp and Shooter are the same person. The only question really is, why did he create Shooter? What is Shooter? And I still have those questions. I think it's pretty obvious Shooter was created in the opening scene when he sees Ted in bed with his wife. Why would a Mississippi hick be at that motel in upstate New York? I'm saying it's when his personality split because he wanted to murder his wife. No, I'm saying why would you create this is your phantom that's going to urge you to kill? Why this guy? What does he mean? Why? Because of shoot her. Again, because of a dumb pun. Yeah, what part of his id, his ego, all that psychology is shooter. Like, there are depths that you can plummet here. I think it's interesting, and it's not a sell for everyone, but to get into the mind of a writer or an artist and, and what makes them tick. You can do some interesting things. Here, it's a baseline thriller, just like, ooh, they're the same person. Bet you didn't see that twist coming. But aren't you enjoying Depp's performance here at all? Aren't you guys... I think they want you to figure out the twist. I think they're spoon-feeding you the twist, unlike Fight Club. They're more and more ramping up towards the idea of what's going to happen. But for what purpose? You should be learning something from that then. So what's the purpose of of telling us the twist, if that's your... Right, yes. I don't want to watch a movie that's all about the last 10 seconds and going, aha. Like, there has to be a subtext to all of this. What did it mean to go through all of this that he created this character in his mind to be the thing that told him he needed to make the ending bloody? Yeah, again, Fight Club, we learn why the unnamed narrator creates Tyler Dearden. Like, we understand why he is Brad Pitt. Yeah, specifically. Like, there's character work here. Whereas this feels, okay, because you went to a garage sale once and put on a hat. That was the moment you, you decided, if I ever decide to kill my wife, I want it to look like this. I'm taking it as he's a writer. That's why he was able to form the identity of John Shooter off the cuff at a garage sale. He did buy the hat. <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to tuck this idea away if I ever need to kill my wife. If that were a main character or if he wrote about the South or had roots in the South, again, there's no reason to think that he would ever have any association with this man or this culture. How do you explain the thoughts of a crazy person? You explain it with good writing and by someone that's actually thought about these questions and answer them. I can think of many, and this is not one of them. I'm fine the fact that his alternate personality is a hick. I mean, not all of Sybil's personalities were female. No, it's, it feels like a children of the corn joke that I wonder why you'd make. 
But we're at the climax. All of this is happening in front of that mirror that's kicked it all off, and he's being forced to talk to multiple depths until he finally realizes, okay, I'm going to put on this hat. And Amy, who had called earlier crying and started sounding like maybe she wanted to come back and maybe she still loved him, maybe it was all a, a cheating was a reaction to losing a baby, well, now she's here and he's going to kill her. But she brought divorce papers. I, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure she's completely innocent. Uh, I mean, what's she deserving of murder for? Cheating. Adultery. That's, okay, that's not a death penalty. I wouldn't give adultery the death penalty. I, I, if you break a commandment, I see death as reasonable in cinema. Yeah, I mean, you can get in that mindset. I mean, again, that's the mind of a criminal. You're asking us to think bad thoughts, but audiences can be with him. It makes us culpable with the killer, but yes, audiences can root for a character. Is that what we're to want? I think we're wanting her to get away when we're having all this chasing shenanigans. Yeah, I don't want her to die. I think that her trying to get to the car and all of this is, you know, like going upstairs and again, the the red rum moment of seeing shoot her carved into the wall. I think this is the point where she's Shelley Duvall trying to get away from Jack Nicholson. We might be more charmed by Jack Nicholson, but we want Shelley Duvall to live. I'm torn by this scene. I mean, I like Maria Bello as an actress. I think she's very good. She's done a number of movies I love. But here, I'm torn on if I want him to kill her because she is a cheating hoe. So it's like, mm, we don't know about this marriage. Like <laughs> A cheating hoe? I mean, she she stepped out of the marriage in the last months. She explains in dialogue, again, nothing about the relationship is told very well, but she has a crying phone call where she says, I only stepped out because you felt absent from the relationship. You, you weren't there anymore, so I needed someone. And I, she even blames herself. She should blame herself. She's the only one to blame because that the marriage was already over when I decided to cheat. It's just a bullshit rationalization. Everybody who does something immoral has a rationalization for it. Nobody is evil because they want to be evil. People are like, I murdered her because she cheated on me. That's a rationalization. That's a reason. Saying I cheated on you because the marriage was emotionally over. Unless you're separated and have made that final commitment to separate, that's bullshit. And like I said, that means I'm torn because part of me thinks you cheat, you die. And part of me thinks she should get away. None of me wants Ted to live. I want Ted dead. I don't have a problem with Ted either. I haven't been liking Depp enough to be wanting to go with him on his new journey. Now that he knows how he wants the ending to go, him killing her... I'm not rooting for it. I'm not really invested. I mean, I guess that would be the, the ultimate truth is I really don't care. But like a Tales from the Dark Side ending, I find this to be a fun twist. And, you know, sometimes bad things happen. The director referred to this as like an Edgar Allan Poe type ending. And yeah, it is kind of telltale hardish. Telltale corn? Yeah, it's corny, all right, with a lot of butter. I mean, it is some corny shit, but is it satisfying? It's not very bloody. I, I guess what I would say is if this were Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, you would want to see that head really get lobbed off or something. Th that's what I'm saying. The dark half didn't have a lot of it, but I got to see an eyeball pop out of a brain. Like, that. that is kind of what I'm going for when I watch a King film, and I know he has a whole variety of styles and motifs and all that, but this one doesn't satisfy just on that base level of wanting some cool effects and gore, and it doesn't satisfy on the level where, oh, this is a dramatic, satisfying story. Kep agrees with you. He would have liked to have had 
more blood, more violence, more cursing. It's the fact that he had to turn in a PG-13 film. It was the studio mandating it. And then the MPAA saying, no, you got to cut some stuff. So he's with you on that. And I agree too. I'd like to actually see the beheading, especially again of Ted, because Ted's been nothing but an ass. Ted has been poking his nose and he's a rubbernecker and rubbernecker deserves to be cut off at the neck. That's really not from King's prose. I can't believe that. In fact, at the end of King's story, they live. It's Mort who gets killed. Mort tries to kill Amy and a cop breaks in at the last minute and shoots Mort dead. I mean, I'm fine with this ending for what it is, but you're asking me what am I rooting for? I mean... I don't care about these people. This movie didn't set up who these people were. I feel like it doesn't really make sense when we get to the punchline. We do not see whether she lives or dies. She is down on the ground, tripped on a rock, and we know that, yeah, Ted's been decapitated, and Mort is quoting the end of his story, so we're starting to think that, oh, it's going to go the way that Shooter wanted it to, but the next thing we see is a very well-groomed chipper Mort, like we haven't seen him throughout the movie, going back to the diner, wearing the braces, as you say, hitting on the post office clerk girl with a new kind of confidence. She ain't holding those UPS packages for you anymore. No, or anything else. <laughs> yeah. And buying a whole lot of salt and butter and napkins because he has decided to grow, you can't call it a secret garden if it's giant corn stalks. I know, I yeah, that's more of a farm. Like, why haven't you found the body? <laughs> why couldn't you figure out that's exactly where the bodies would be? It, it, what does their bodies have to do with becoming fertilizer for corn? Like, I feel whatever he does with those bodies should have been relevant to the story somehow. Okay, there's a garden here now, but it's really just corn. It's just a farm, a little farm. Yeah, there is no corn in the short story, and like I said, the wife lives, so this is all original. Why then do they do this? Because if you're into King, all I thought was Children of the Corn. I actually started laughing out loud during the, this final reveal. The sheriff comes into his home, and he's just upstairs eating that corn and pan out of that secret window into the corn stalks. Like, this is a, like, is this Isaac all grown up? Yeah, or an origin story. I like this ending better than King's ending. I think this works a lot better. You like, just as an ending, do you yes. like it? Like, forget about comparing it. Yes, I like the ending where we have people buried in the garden, which helps justify the name Secret Window, Secret Garden. And the fact that he's eating crops from the land they're fertilized. And, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't even bother planting them before eating them. So I'm okay. But this isn't about cannibalism. Like, I got my cake, Bedelia. I got my cake. Yeah, it's creep show. I get that. Like, it's a ending to a EC Comics. It's an irony. He is now able to enjoy her in death in, in a way. And he's sitting at the laptop and typing away on his new story. The writer's block is gone. Yes, I get that. The writer block's over. What does this new ending mean, though? Like, it's always about this new ending that he's got to write for some story that he's already written. Again, I want to see that play out somehow. How is this a better ending, this this Children of the Corn prequel-sequel thing, a better ending than whatever he wrote in 95? Well, just the fact that it has corn in it does not make it Children of the Corn. I'm sorry, it's Stephen King and corn. It's their own fault. It could have been any plants. It's true. The fact that they picked corn stalks among anything you could put there leads me to believe somebody thought it was a joke on Children of the Corn. But that hat, I mean, come on. Somebody in the art department <laughs> was like laughing about that series. But Jacob, if this were a story about Mort and Shooter, 
Shooter told him at the beginning, one of us is going to die. One of us is going to be dead if we start fighting. Which one is dead? I'm assuming Mort is because now he's wearing the Shooter hat. Yeah, I take it as Mort's dead and Shooter took over. Is he going to talk with a Mississippi accent? Is that who he always was? Is he just going to act like some rube now? If you're going for this kind of lowbrow thriller, which I think this ultimately ends up being, in Fight Club, they were able to have a face-off between a man and himself. Like, they found a way to visualize that. You have some kind of fight between Mort and Shooter. You think Shooter's dead. And then you get this reveal that, no, Shooter's still, uh, that persona is still alive and has taken over in one. Like, it's a corny, cliched ending, but I would have preferred that over just eating some corn. I like it that Mort just succumbs, that Mort is taken over by Shooter. I don't feel like he was just taken over, though. It's just, this is the ending. He's wearing that hat. I don't feel there's a confrontation. Let me ask you this. Is Shooter hitting on the post office clerk? Like, is that a Shooter persona? (laughs) John Turturro never gets the girl, like you said, Stuart. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I again, this, this is the ending that makes no sense once you start thinking about it. It's just a twist for a twist's sake. You know what, though? I actually do think this is Mort because of the line, their disappearance will be a mystery even to me. Shooter is fading because what happened was his masculinity was robbed from him. He was cheated on. He ended up being a sad sack in a dirty robe lying on a sofa with an old dog that was half blind. That's not because he was cheated on. It's because he has bad life coping skills. No, it's because he was cheated on that that happened. Yes, go see a therapist and work through that. That doesn't mean you have to lay around in a robe. There's lots of productive people that have been cheated on. I mean, I presume that his manuscripts are what built the house and all of that. But maybe not. Maybe I'm just projecting Stephen King. That's what I thought. That's what I assumed. And he doesn't actually have a, a illustrious writing career. Yeah, it's very hard to say here. And he may have so much money that getting rid of that house is a minor thing. But he is feeling emasculated by what has happened to him, by his wife cheating on him. And once Shooter avenges him, then Shooter's no longer needed. Shooter can disappear, but now he's happy again. His depression is over because, he, you know, it's an abusive ending. It's not a good ending. I'm not like calling him a hero, but the killing of his wife has freed him to become a better man. If that's what Shooter represents, then we needed the big reveal to be that Shooter somehow was involved with that last guy that he plagiarized and he kind of like scared him, intimidated somehow that the Shooter character means something. It's This is the first time he's pulled out this thing out of his imagination. It feels very weird to just start schizophrenia this late in life. I, I'm sure it happens, but it feels weird for a story. Like he should have multiple personalities. I don't know. It feels like going back further than just this one time it popped up. Yeah, Shooter was not the apparition to fulfill his dark half. That just, I'm not buying it. That's how I take the story. I get that that's what they want us to take, but you can have it. I don't want it. All right, well, I see where this is going, but Jacob Stewart, do you bite into Secret Window? Jacob. I'm just going to judge this movie by the criteria it establishes. So here's a little quote from the movie. You know, the only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story, (laughs) the ending, and this one is very good. This one's perfect. 
<laughs> uh, look, I, I, no, it's not perfect. It's a silly ending. I was kind of engaged with the film. Just again, I, I'm seeing this about a struggling artist trying to find that inspiration, maybe going to the dark side and trying to find creative energy through that. Okay, I'm kind of into it if that was the story. It ends up not being that. It ends up being this silly... Look, endings could sink movies. I remember I saw Sunshine, and I throughout the, almost that entire film, I was mesmerized. I'm like, this is like witnessing 2001 all over again. Just these these beautiful shots of space and the pondering, what does it mean to approach our our sun and, and seeing that as God? And then it turns into a, a slasher at the end of that film. I'm I love that ending. Oh, I hate it. I like I'm like this movie's garbage. Like it almost destroyed the whole movie for me. Everything that I loved for the first hour and 50 minutes, and then they just throw it away, and that's how this one like i'm like uh it's a weak not recommend and then i get to that ending i'm like oh no this is not a recommend do not see this like i would rather see the dark half again because that's a film that knows it's beef jerky and and look i didn't recommend that one either but it just worked better for me this one thinks it's a steak and it's a big mac from mcdonald's like i could pass it so there you go not recommend stewart yeah we are far enough away from the turn of the millennium that i did forget how trendy it was to make thrillers like this with a big psychological supernatural twist, Sixth Sense, The Others, Identity, Usual Suspect, End Dreams. We've talked about all of them. Narratives built on this premise that we assume something untrue about the main character and it comes to light in the topsy-turvy climax. And it's a neat trick if you can pull it off. I'm not opposed to that as a structure. It can be fun. But I rarely find that the best of those films are all about the twist. It has to be more than a magic trick. Fight Club is great not because of Ed Norton's trippy relationship to Brad Pitt. It's great because it's a caustic look at consumerism. And Memento gets to somewhere tragic by telling us who Sammy Jenkins is. You hit deeper emotional depths after you surprise us. You have to. And Secret Window, man, it's jumping on the bandwagon five years too late and with nothing to give that aftertaste once you figure out that Depp is Turturro, which for me was instantaneously. You know, it needed to say something about marriage, needed to say something about the writing process, madness, fame, something. I don't care what it is, but it needed a subtext. It needed to be about something else. And instead, it is a corny EC Comics ending that doesn't even really hold up or make sense. I find myself not wanting to condemn this movie, but just deflate its pretensions. You know, the careening camera work, that bombastic Philip Glass score. Depp, I don't think he's very good here at all. You asked me if I enjoyed him. Rein it in. He is overacting a lot to cover up how lame the story is. Chop it down to that 30-minute Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and yeah, I could probably say that's enjoyable. That is a fun little creep show. But this at theatrical length? No, a huge identity crisis. You think you're some great Hitchcockian thriller, but at 90 minutes, no, not recommend. First of all, I really love the Philip Glass score in this. I think it complements the movie nicely. I also like the gamma work. I'd rather have that than the dark half, you know? I'd rather have some pretension and have some interesting things going on. It's a very flat movie of one character talking to himself. You could very quickly devolve into a one-man stage play if you didn't have nice camera tricks going on. And I guess it comes down to, are you enjoying that one man? Because for me, Johnny Depp makes this movie very enjoyable and completely worth watching. 
I think that it is lighthearted. I think it is creep show, and I like it for that. I don't have a problem with a creep show kind of tale being told here. I'll agree that it's a little bit slow. I cannot deny that even at 90 minutes, King's story was drawn out, and this is too. And Timothy Hutton, I don't really think he gives a great performance. I like Totoro, though. I find him amusing. And I like Johnny Depp. I find him really amusing. And the scene with, like, ten Depps is... I mean, Depp to the 10th power is something I want to see. You want a multiplicity reboot with Depp? Yeah, I'd be down. <laughs> I'd be down with Dark Cap with Depp. If they want to remake that with him, then okay, we could go. I could go with that one. And I think he is setting the tone of this to be lighthearted. If, if this were being sold and handled like a complete serious thriller, like God help me, Graveyard Shift tried to be straight horror. It sucked terribly, but it tried to be straight horror. And here, it's winking at you the whole time. It's like, have fun. And that's what this is. This is lighthearted fun for me. And it's a solid recommend. I mean, I really enjoy watching this. Again, I get the humor. I Again, the tenant, Roman Polanski. I think that he was really skilled at the horror comedy. That was sort of his bag. I mean, he really helped pioneer that. So I think Depp was trying to bring that in from working with him. I think the problem is Cap, really. I just think that that guy overinflated this material. It's just full of hot air. Like, this thing is way overblown. You, you're telling me that this was worth 90 minutes of your time. Absolutely. This joke about corn. It's not a joke about corn. It's a lighthearted. It is perfect ending, it claims, in its corn. Yeah, I'm eating from the grave of my wife. And that's, I should have killed her all along. I mean, that, at best, that's 20 minutes in Creep Show. Like, at best. Where's my cake? I said it's a little drawn out, but Depp's performance is strong enough to carry the time. Uh, if you say so. I actually found myself sort of irritated with the way that he was trying to do all these ticks with his mouth and all of that. I just, I'm like, what are you doing? I, I know what you're doing. You're trying to make something uninteresting interesting. And the more he tried, the worse it got. In the hands of a different actor, I could see this movie being a strong not recommend. But I think it's all going to come down to how you feel about Depp. And I like Depp. I like Depp. No, this is not a, a referendum on how do I feel about Johnny Depp. I, he's a good actor. I still like him, no matter his personal troubles. I like the performances he turned in. But he's made bad movies, and this is one of them. I disagree. I agree he's made bad movies. But this one, it's not Jack Sparrow, but it's pretty close to screen capturing uh, performance. Okay, that's too far for me. I, I disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, again, I can name 20 Johnny Depp movies that have a lot more going on than this. But you know what? I don't want to rob people of a good time. It seems like a one-joke premise. To me, it played as like you really got to love where this movie ends in order to sustain its overlong running length. And I just, again, it had nothing to say about writing. And I thought that was the point. At least Dark Half had that going for it. Dark Half, to me, is a better film. Misery, obviously, is the best yes. we've seen so far, but like, if we're talking about theatrical films, I think it's really important not to take Stephen King short works and make them long, right? Like, don't do that anymore. Like, that doesn't work. Stand by me. 
Uh, yeah, Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption, it can work. I uh, Okay, it, it worked in, I would say, in one instance there. You recommended both, didn't you? I think you did. I wish I hadn't recommended Shawshank, but I mean, I came to peace with it, but I don't like the movie. I mean, if, if, you, if you want me to be blunt, I don't like that movie. I never will like that movie, but I understand that it works for people that are in the mindset that want to consume it. My point is, those were kind of rare Stephen King works anyway. They don't really represent the kinds of things that he usually writes. And if you're going to take short horror works of Stephen King and try and stretch them out, most of the time they end up being Mangler. And I don't want that anymore. Yeah, you never really need to sequel one of his short stories. I've never seen one of his short stories where I'm like, we need to get deeper into that mythos, Children of the Corn. Yeah. Well, they those keep cranking, and we're going to hit the pause button on Stephen King. We're going to take a little break, but when we pick it up again, we're going to get something we haven't seen with Stephen King. Uh, original work written for the screen, Golden Years. It was a TV series that he developed uh, in the early 90s. With Fred Savage? <laughs> that's Wonder Years? <laughs> oh, that's right. No Winnie in this one. I've never actually seen it. I have no idea. I know they cut it down and released it on a disc, so it is considered a movie that we can consume, or at least a miniseries, so we're going to do it. I saw it once, right when it was released on VHS. I never saw the original series. It was trying to be like a Twin Peaksy type of thing. Imagine Twin Peaks meets Benjamin Button. Yeah. But my memory is the abridged version becomes nonsensical in the second half, and the longer it goes, the more edited it is, and the less I could make sense. But I may have just been watching this at 3 or 4 a.m., which I was wont to do back then. So it could be me. I may have not been processing it properly. This will be my first time watching it in... 30 years. I promise to give it a pass. I mean, it's not fair. When you design a TV series as a season and they say, find an ending to it in the editing room. Okay, if the ending's bad, I'll overlook that. I'm hoping not everything is Langoliers, if you know what I mean. Like Stephen King on TV, (laughs) most of the time has not been a good thing. Well, we'll be getting to golden years in just a few weeks. We're not going to wait till our golden years to do it. But in between, we've got a most excellent retrospective series we're actually getting a new movie a sequel bill and ted face the music the third part of the bill and ted series so next week break out your air guitar because we're going to be reviewing bill and ted's excellent adventure leading up to the new release on both video on demand and in some theaters why not i mean let's look at the landscape new movie coming out we we're just gonna do it And this Friday, if you donated for the Jaws series way back when, or when Deep Blue Sea 2 came out, (laughs) whenever that was, that lost weekend, (laughs) Deep Blue Sea 3 is the movie nobody asked for has come out and we're reviewing it this Friday. Do you think I need to revisit Deep Blue Sea 2? Because I don't remember anything. (laughs) No, just the LL Cool J song. Yeah, I think it's for the best if you don't remember anything about it. It's funny that we tacked this one to Jaws. Can you think of anything less deserving of being tied to Jaws than Deep Blue Sea 3? Sharknado 1 through 6 or however many of those they have? Fair enough. 
We were improperly led to and lied to being told that Deep Blue Sea started as a genetically modified Jaws 5 and then it became its own franchise. That turned out to be a complete falsehood, but that's how it happened. Hey, it's a new movie, guys. Like We take them where we can get them these days. I mean, it came out last week and it's a movie people can see that they weren't able to the week before, so that makes it new. Yeah, maybe it'll be the surprise of the year. (laughs) It'll be good. Yeah, it probably is better than Fantasy Island. Oh yeah, I'll agree with you there. And if you missed out on the Jaws retrospective the last couple of times, we are starting our fall donation series really soon, and this will be at the Deep Blue level where you can get all the Jaws reviews and three Deep Blue Sea reviews now. Yeah, because that's a trilogy we need. You think they'll just stop at three? (laughs) I can't wait till we get Deep Blue Sharknado. We gotta just combine those two. Oh man. Yeah, you're going to make me regret this even more. (laughs) That's a nightmare coming to life. But in the meantime, thank you everyone for joining us. And now, yeah, I'll go. We'll talk more later. You know, the only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story, the ending. And this one... It's very good. This one's perfect. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Always a pleasure to meet a reader. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. That guy was just an obsessed reader who couldn't tell real life from the crap you make up for a living. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Don't go back. Do not go back there. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. I wouldn't go too far if I were you. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I exist because you made me. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I want you to help me in the same way that... in the same way that you did before. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you going to help me or not? You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I'm open to suggestions. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You strike me as the kind of guy who's on the lookout for a head he can knock off with a shovel. Associate produced by Jason. You're a good man. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Been down that road. Sucks. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You and me are going to have a little talk. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts 
and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. That was a dick thing to say, you know, rotten profession. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. This is between you and me. We don't need any outsiders. It is strictly between you and me. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Won't do you any good to play games with me. This has got to be settled. So far as I'm concerned, it is. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Well, he did break a law, but it doesn't seem to be a very important law in Tashmore Lake. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I know I can do it. Todd Downey said, helping himself to another ear of corn from the steaming bowl. I'm sure that in time, her death will be a mystery even to me. How does this work in 2004? Why not just pull out your phone? Yes, I was asking all these questions. All right, the first iPhone didn't come out until 2008. No, you could go on the internet on your phone. You definitely could in 2004. Yeah, but it was all text-based, and you had to arrow up, arrow down. It didn't work for shit. Yeah, and you could still do that. What I'm saying is... You probably couldn't... You didn't have Google. You couldn't Google on your phone. You could go to elleryqueen.com and go through their archives. You could not do that on your Nokia in 2004. Okay, you couldn't do one on the phone. I'll take you at that. You get my point. But there can't be anyone that's going to have their mouth blown. Or, <laughs> mouth blown. There can't be anyone that's going to have their mouth open. And I was kind of engaged to it. I was kind of engaged to it. Yes, I was going to marry this film. It was then going to cheat on me. Yeah, you're going to bury it in yeah. your garden. Yes, it would cheat on me, and I would hire John Chitoro to burn every copy of this because it deserves it. <laughs>